Well, good evening, fellow Mets fans. This is Rich Sparago, known as Mets Killing Me, Met Fan Rich on Twitter. And you are listening to the 26th episode of a Metsian podcast with Sam Rich and Mike. And just a couple of opening words here. Not sure if um, any of you watched the the TV series Family Guy, but all I could think about is an episode of Family Guy where Peter Griffin gets into an accident. He's in the hospital, and and Lois comes in, his wife, to talk to him. And she says, how are you, Peter? And he says, I've had better days, Lois. I've had better days. Well, the same can be said about the Mets. It it, it was not a good day today. Um, We can get into all of it. We can get into losing the game, losing the series losing two outstanding players, one for probably longer than the other. We have a lot to talk about tonight, and so I'll stop there with my opening words and introduce my co-conspirators in the Metsian podcast. First, I'd like to uh, to go to the man who is permanently on location. So, Mr. Sam Maxwell, the mastermind behind this podcast, please tell us, sir, where we could find you tonight. Where in the, in the tri-state area are you, and how are you doing? Today, I am... And thank you, Rich, of course. Uh, today I am in Hell's Kitchen, back in uh, the home that I have called home since 1998. Uh, I'm actually in my we're, – we're very lucky to have this apartment. It's an old piano factory, and I'm in the courtyard. I'm, I'm sitting on the stairs of the, uh, the balcony, and it's just uh, it's a, a beautiful sight to see without having rain overhead, which – allows me, of course, to have the computer, but also allows me to see the moon and see the, the, the clouds. And you know what? I can see a couple stars here near Times Square, which is pretty remarkable nonetheless. So uh, glad that I could just be relaxing a little bit and not driving all over the tri-state tonight. Sounds great, and, and enjoy that. That sounds like a great setting. And, and we'll wheel it around to the great borough of Brooklyn and bring in my other co-conspirator in the podcast, Mr. Mike LeColent. Mike, uh, you're usually in your home when we do these, generally, in the borough of Brooklyn. So is that where we find you tonight? That is correct, sir. I'm home in the man cave. Uh, You know, it's a good, safe place to be. (laughs) Yes, it is. That's why they call it a man cave, right? Yep. There you go. All right, so tonight we have a very special guest to join us uh, this evening, and and thanks to Sam for asking her to spend a few minutes with us tonight. We're thrilled to have someone you probably know on Twitter as at that Mets chick. She also writes a blog of the same name. That's Met, Met ah, that Mets chick. Excuse me. And so her name is Bree, and I'd like to tell you a little bit about her, and then ask her to tell you more about herself. Bree is 24 years old, and she's from Long Island. She fell in love with the game of baseball because of her dad and brother. She played four years of college softball, played center and right, and had an absolute cannon of a throwing arm. Um, Her (laughs) all-time favorite Mets players are David Wright and Carlos Beltran, while her current favorite Mets players are Michael Conforto and Jeff McNeil, just like myself. Um, She started following the Mets in 2003 when Jose Reyes made his debut, and has been in the throes of the New York Mets in their iron grasp, and they do not let us go ever since. So, Bree, um, welcome yes. to the podcast. Thank you again for joining us. We hope things are Thanks going for well for you on Long Island. And tell us a little bit more about yourself. Sure. Well, uh, when you mentioned that I have a cannon of an arm when I was uh, writing that bio out, I just like to say that so my followers know that when I was in college, I 
I did. That's the one thing I was known for, having a cannon of an arm, throwing people out at the plate, throwing people out at second, even throwing people out at first base. So that's where I usually take my you know, pride and joy in. Um, and you said that uh, my all-time favorite players, David Wright and Carlos Beltran. David Wright's the obvious. He's the franchise player. Sorry, Tom Seaver. But he's my franchise player, at least, because I wasn't wasn't around to see uh, Tom Seaver pitch. And Carlos Beltran, just because he played my position, so I looked up to him. He made great plays in the outfield. He was a great switch hitter. Um, so that's why those two are my favorites. Great choices. And um, and Conforto and McNeil now. And uh, so to, tell us a little bit more about that. So why do you find yourself drawn to Conforto and McNeil? Uh, well, Conforto has always been my favorite. Um, I actually watched him when he was on Oregon uh, playing, you know, college uh, World Series. So I've been following him since then. Excited that he got drafted by the Mets. Um, and, again, he plays my positions. He plays left, center, right. So when I was in college, um, I looked up to him as well. Um, McNeil, the squirrel, he's an absolute beast. He gets on base all the time. He hits all the time. And hitters nowadays, you see them batting like 220 and have 30 home runs, you know, 90 RBIs driven in. But McNeil, all he does is bat, what is his career line, like three – it's definitely over 300 now. So he reminds me of someone that was hitting in the 70s and the 80s as opposed to, you know, the hitters you have now with the low batting averages. So that's why I like him. And, you know, Mike and I, of course, go back that far. And, you know, I liken McNeil to Wally Backman. I know I'm not the first person to say that. A guy who will literally run through a brick wall, do anything he possibly can to win a ball game. I think the guy's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And Conforto's my guy. I mean, I just, I love his mm-hmm. swing. He is going to win a batting title at some point. I just hope he wins it in a Mets uniform at this point because yeah. I know he's represented by Boris. But that's a discussion for another day. Um, mm-hmm. So, well, welcome, Bree, and thank you. Um, so, with all that said, let's jump into the content for this evening. And, and I wish it were good content, and it's not. So let's start with um, the series that the Mets just completed in D.C. They completed it today with an excruciating loss to the Nationals. Um, so I'll say a couple of words, and then I'll wheel it around for, for all of you to comment. This is a series the Mets should have won based on who the Mets are and who the Nationals are and the way the Nationals had been playing. Uh, the pitching matchups favored the Mets other than Wilmer Font, and we'll get into that. Um, so the Mets should have won the series. They did not. Um, they, they today had opportunities, and we'll talk about how the roster may have gotten in the way of capitalizing on those opportunities. But really, you know, it, it's not a good evening to be a Mets fan. So not only did they lose the series, they, they lost Michael Conforto for probably at least a week as he'll go into the seven-day concussion protocol. Jeff McNeil is, you know, uh, boldly saying that he'll, um, he'll play over the weekend, that he had four sports hernias repaired, and this is just scar tissue. He said he, he's experienced it before, so let's hope that's true. Um, but, but a lot, lot going on in Metsville, and, and not a lot good. So, Bree, let's start with you. Um, you know, you're sitting here right now at 9, 10 at night. What are you thinking about that series? Like, where's your head? What are your emotions? Talk to us. Uh, to be blunt, I don't think the Mets are a good team right now. Just to be blunt right there, they're 4-5 and five 
starters now with it font, and then we don't even know who's the fifth starter because Vargas is on the DL. We got one through three. Wheeler has been inconsistent pitching. He gave up six runs today. Um, right now, I think the Mets aren't a good team. If if you take out them playing the Marlins, they're they're terrible. Though in any other division, there's like a fourth, fifth place team, but luckily they have the Marlins there uh, behind them. But they have to they have to sweep the Marlins next three games. Oh, they're looking bad. Yeah, uh, I think that's about right. I mean, I think what the Mets showed us, I think to hit on what you just said, I think what what the Mets showed us is maybe they're they're just not that good. You know, maybe when they go into Washington playing a team that was that was reeling, they're not good enough to deliver a death blow, and and that bothers me because I I had uh, consumed the Kool Aid in the off season. You know, I, I thought they had put the roster together given the limits they had financially. I thought it was a pretty good roster. And I, I've been proven wrong through a, a quarter of the season. So, Mike, let's go to you. I know you have some thoughts on this. What did this series in, in Washington tell you about our beloved blue and orange? Mm, that's a loaded question. Uh, there's a lot that I'll just chalk up to baseball, the law of averages in a 162-game season. Uh, but the fact that they're 20 and 22 at the moment, you know, I'm going to treat them as such. Uh, and you nailed it. They're, they're not a good team right now. Bree, you said it. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and, Rich, we touched upon this before going on the air. Yes, the Mets have depth. They have major league-ready depth. It's not like we're plugging in A-plus and double-A players into slots uh, that we're lacking. Uh, we have major league ready depth, and it's been working. The the offense, you know, is is middle of the pack or 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 below. Yet it's what's keeping us afloat. All that said, this twenty five man roster is very poorly constructed, uh, and uh, I guess the results are, speak for themselves. Yes. A good way to, to tease it up there, Mike, because we're going to get into that a lot on the roster. So, Sam, um, the D.C. debacle, we'll call it. What are your thoughts? It's unfortunately what I feared. Um, slump busters. The, the Mets are league slump busters. The, the, uh, unfortunately, they have a knack for facing teams that haven't been performing well. And all of a sudden, whether it's the Nationals getting up for facing one of their biggest rivals uh, or just the Mets not being all that good, like you guys keep alluding to, um, the Mets have a knack for turning teams around. And, um, uh, you know, I always say that they have to, you know, push the the foot on the neck of their opposition who are down and, and out. And, and keep on pressing. I I I, I go back to uh, Jason Vargas facing the Phillies the next night after the Mets had gained a lot of momentum with uh, with Stephen Matson, Zach Wheeler, um, and then looked completely listless regardless of of the performance that Jason Vargas uh, had going out there. Um, I go back to yesterday when we're sending out somebody we brought in just to be a bullpen body. Wilmer Font, and no offense to Wilmer Font, but he just doesn't cut it following an excellent, excellent performance by Noah Syndergaard, who is starting, you know, piece by piece to get back on track. And so I, I 
I, I just think like, and especially like, so I saw somebody, I forget whether it was Twitter or Facebook, but I saw a point made about how they could have skipped over font and just gone right to Wheeler, uh, considering the rain out. So there's just, I'm going to use one of Mike's words, uh, ponderous. It, 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 it's very ponderous that they keep making these weird decisions that completely halt the momentum that they're starting to gain. And obviously, uh, the offense didn't do much yesterday in, in the game, but at the same time, if you have a better starter on the mound to begin the game, maybe they aren't pressing so hard. Um, and, and going back to something else that Mike talked about on the last podcast about Cano, uh, yesterday Cano had an opportunity to tie the game, or, or two nights ago to tie the game, uh, when the Mets were down 3-1, to one, and unfortunately uh, he couldn't get it done. And that just seems to be the way of it, even though Cano had a 2-4 for four game or, or something of that nature, because I might be missing at-bats at in the ninth inning. Uh, it's overshadowed by the fact that he uh, collided with Michael Conforto. So it's just constantly one step forward, three steps back. A lot of us can, can relate to that for sure, but, you know, that's, that's the, the frustrating part. A lot of us look towards our, our ball team to be metaphors, and we ourselves feel like there is hope on the horizon for our own personal games. Uh, and obviously you can't let – the fact that the Mets can't get it together affects you one way or the other, but it's just, it affects your mood. And, and ironically, I, the, the right after, literally right after uh, I saw the final score, uh, which was weirdly enough when I checked game day, it was the bases loaded. It was seven to six. They had scored two runs, but if you looked even closer, it showed three strikes and three outs. It just hadn't updated to be a final yet. It, it, it still showed me exactly what the results were during that three strike out, that third strike of Keon Broxton. But I was on my way back to Hoboken, and the first ride I got was an overly emotional Mets fan in finance who was like, I, I have to turn it off sometimes because I'm usually way too emotional for hours on end after the game. And once it was six to four, once they kept, you know, they tied it, but then it was, it was, it, they, they gave up two more runs. I knew that the Mets were going to lose this game and I had to turn it off. And it sucks that the Mets have put people into that, that cycle, but that's just the way of it. It, it, it was an interesting conversation. It was a long ride. So we literally just went back and forth about the Mets the whole time. And it was weirdly poetic and weirdly uh, comforting to commiserate with the misery and, and, and complaining about this team and what they keep all the, the, the usual inconsistencies, consistent inconsistencies that they're going through. But, uh, you know, we're, we're all out there. And, and like he said, you know, we're passionate about it. You can't, you really can't be a diehard. You know, you can't, you can't really be a fan of this team without being extremely passionate the way they, they have us set up. Well, you know, it's interesting to, to that point. Um, I was more active than usual on Twitter today during the game. And, and like I was telling Mike before we started, when the Mets tied it and then the, then the concussion play, which we'll get into, and then the two-run home run, I said to myself, it was fifth inning, and I tweeted this out, that there was no way this game was going to end in my mind. I've been a fan of this team for 40 years. No way that this game would end any other way than the, than the Mets having the tying runs in scoring position in the ninth inning 
and losing because you just knew it was going to end that way. It was going to be that game that was going to rip your heart out and stomp on it, and that's really what happened. Um, it's all about unfulfilled expectations, you know, with the series and, and everything. So let's get into it a little bit more. So let, now that we've talked about the series in D.C., let, let's try to peel back the onion here and figure out why this is happening. So, Mike, I'll start with you. Um, so, Mike, let's play Help Rich Understand. So the Mets talk about they have the great rotation, great rotation. The pitching will take us to where we want to be, all that. Okay, great. And now the rotation has people like uh, Corey Oswalt, Jason Vargas, who was here last year, Wilmer Font, who the Mets pick up off the scrap heap with his you know, six-plus ERA, five teams in two years. So the team is predicated on great starting pitching, but the team is walking guys like that out there, and sometimes they don't know who the hell is going to start. Like, they don't know who's starting Saturday. It's going to be Mats. He says he's ready, but is he? Don't know. Uh, could it be Gagno? Don't know. So what happened, Mike? Help me understand what happened to this team and the and the vaunted starting pitching staff. The biggest problem is Brody's narrative, because everything gets compared to that. Uh, that is right right now. That is the measure of all things. Is off season narrative. Come get us. We're the National League East leaders. Prior to that, you know, uh, we were all pretty much. How, how should I say, docile and a lot more understanding that we were a sub-500 team in need of change, drastic change. Uh, and then he comes along, and this also has everything to do with money, Rich, because with money, you can add to your talent as opposed to, you know, bargaining away talent for talent. Uh, and, and there's none of that. There's none of that to be had. There's none of that to be spent. So, you know, he got caught up in his own narrative. Prior to that, we had an understanding of what the Mets were and and pretty much where they were headed. I, I guess that goes back to Sandy Alderson. Uh, but at the same time, we were a 500 team or better right up until June 1st last season. Here we are. It's May 16th, and we're not. So I think that says a lot. He changed up a lot of faces, definitely changed the 25-man roster, purged bodies, imported bodies, but he did that at the expense of touted prospects, albeit low-level prospects, in lieu of money. So I think those are the two biggest uh, variables when it comes to shaping our perspective as fans, Rich. A, Brody's narrative, and B, ownership's, you know, fiscal, uh, you know, prohibitions. That's what we're up against. You know, now if we get into a conversation about the players, which we are and will, you know, at some point they have to perform. But I, I think the overwhelming issue at hand is is, is really perception. Because Brody came in and he changed that perception. Uh, I tried playing along as best I could. You know me; I was very skeptical of you know his hiring. I tried playing along at opening day. I was like, "All right, here we go, new season. Let's see what happens." But here we are. Things aren't going so well. And like I say, they're two games under 500. 
They're a subpar team, and, you know, they should be treated and handled as such. Well, good perspective. So, Bree, let's go to you. Um, I don't know. I, I'm Mike's saying it, it's financially driven, and I think that that's certainly true. And, and the new angle from Mike that I hadn't thought about is this, this thing about unfulfilled expectations. You know, so you set the expectations way up here, and you can't see my hand over my head. You set your expectations <laughs> way up there, and you come in down here. My hand is now around my belly. Um, and so that, that is a big part of it. So, But, but Bree, when, when you see – Going to spring training, Mets have great pitchers, have great pitching, going to be pitching, all this stuff. Wilmer Font's out there, Gagneau, Oswalt, question mark starter. What goes through your head? I just think the Mets are, uh, you know, pretenders and not, um, uh, what do you call it? Pretenders and not um, contenders. Contend- That's the word I was looking right. for. Uh, <laughs> so the expectation is there, you know, come and get us. Come and get us, but you have font. You have all these minor leaguers making spot starts for the Mets. It's the perception is, you know, we're going to be good. We're not going to leave if in the lineup, but here we are, and there's a ton of ifs. Who's our fourth starter? Who's our fifth starter? And these every every fan, every fan on Mets Twitter, is getting frustrated because you put these expectations in the off season, and then you go ahead and you run your 25-man roster. You have Frazier, who's batting under 200. You have Keon Broxton, who can't swing at a fastball right down the middle. And you wonder why you're two games under 500. It's because you don't have the best 25 men on the roster. Now, given there's been injuries, but simple solution, in the offseason, you should have got better players. You know, you should have got Manny Machado, even Bryce Harper, he's not doing incredibly well right now, but he's a better option over Keon Broxton and all these, you know, false expectations that you're making. Like, if this guy performs well, if this guy does this, if this guy does that, in the offseason, Brody said he was going to eliminate the ifs. But here we are, today's date, and there's so many ifs in this lineup. That's why, you know, there's two games under 500 right now. I, I think that has a lot to do with it. Um, I, I think there are a lot of black holes in the lineup that we'll get to, but I think that's a good perspective. So, Sam, I've heard for, I didn't hear expect to hear that, and I heard it from both of them. I heard that it's not only the you know the cold hard facts about the roster and underperformance; it's expectation based, which I, I really wasn't expecting that. So, what are your thoughts? I think that every year the Mets should expect to contend. And honestly, I, I, the way I like to say it is the Mets are, the Mets are always a wild card, even if they don't contend for one. And I think that if you uh, look at, you know, what's uh, similar between this year and last year, you've got to start to doubt Mickey Calloway. Now I do like to say that, you know, one of the big problems in this city is the fact that we can never let anybody settle in, whether it's a prospect, whether it's a manager, anybody, we never let just, you know, get their feet wet. Obviously he's in his sophomore year as a manager and this is a tough place to attempt to become a manager. And he, he didn't, uh, as far as I can tell, I think he went from being a player to being a coach and never was a manager at any other level. Uh, obviously, I might not have all the uh, uh, information in front of me, 
but you you know there has to be something said for needing some seasoning, whether it be uh, coaching, whether it be managing. Um, it, there's it's not just ball players who need seasoning; it's also managers uh, quite possibly. And uh, two years in a row, and this one seems to be like like Mike has brought up before. Uh, it took them longer to go under 500 than it did this year. But this is two years in a row that he doesn't seem to be preparing this team for the full 162 game back. And this is where I go currently. This is what I wanted to bring up. Uh, you have to wonder with, when it, in regards to Mickey Calloway, whether he is personally prepared to handle what it takes to meet those expectations that you guys are talking about? Well, you know, the thing with Mickey, we can get into that. Um, You know, I I saw a lot of chatter today about Mickey should have been out arguing balls and strikes. You know, I've never been a big believer in that. I've never been a big believer that a manager getting thrown out of the game somehow inspires team, but maybe. But Mickey does seem to have flatlined a little bit. You know, when you look at his his post-game conferences, he almost looks defeated, and, and that can't be a good thing. So, all right, let, let's move around to another issue that happened today. Um, and it wouldn't be the Mets if there weren't injuries, right? So uh, the play that not only lost them the game, in my opinion, the little bloop behind first base, that Cano and, Con, and uh, Conforto got into it. They bumped into each other. Conforto is now going to be on the concussion protocol seven-day DL because of it. And Jeff McNeil is claiming, like I said earlier, that he's fine. This happens to him on a regular basis. Okay, great. So now, with Conforto going on the seven-day concussion protocol, here's my question for you, Bree. We'll go with you first again. Um, sure. What should they do? So they'll have an open roster spot for seven days. How would you like to see them fill that spot? But then in, another question, a second question would be, how would you like to see them – fill the gap on the field. So do they bring up a, a, you know, a bench player and then just use what they have? Do they bring somebody up and put that person in? And I'll, I'll throw this out. You probably saw this. Mickey Calloway was on with Francesa about 5 o'clock, and, and he said that J.D. Davis will be playing left field um, tomorrow night. So is that the right way to go? So, Bree, what should be the roster move, and how should they manage the actual lineup on the field? Mm-hmm. So this is tricky because I thought they were going to, you know, put Michael Conforto on the you know, seven-day injury list and call up um, Carlos Gomez. But I, is he, I'm not sure if he's on the 40-man roster, if they would have to create a 40-man roster spot for him. But I don't see them calling him up for only seven games and then sending him back down. So this is like a tricky spot. Um, if they need offense, which – they're going to need, I think, probably, you know, J.D. Davis, he, last year he was 26 innings in left field, so he does have some experience there. Dom Smith is willing to play left field as well. So um, if you guys, if you have them in left field, you're going to have to have McNeil at third base, you know, if he's healthy. Um, and then, you know, Lagares in center field for that center field defense. Um and then, wait, that leaves who's in right field then. So this is, see, the Mets are a mess right now. You can't even – you got one hole to fill, and then you have another one after that. So it's it's really tricky. I'm, I'm glad I'm not the manager, to be honest. <laughs> well, 
But, okay, if you call up Gomez, right, do you put Gomez in right and put him right in the major leagues and say, all right, J.D. Davis, you play left, McNeil third? Or do you say, nah, we're not, we're kidding, we're not really going to put Davis in, at, in left field. We'll keep McNeil in left, only make one mm-hmm. move, swap Gomez in for Conforto. I don't know, how would you handle that? Or you have to think about it a little bit. Yeah, I would have to think about it. Is is McNeil the better third baseman than Davis, who you know double clutches every single ball, um, or is da- or is McNeil better in left field? It is tricky. I do think McNeil would be the better option if you want the defense at third base. Um, so it is tricky. I mean, you can play around with it and and go a couple games. You know, McNeil in left and then Davis in left to see who plays better. But it's it's really tricky at this point. It is. So, Sam, how would you do it? What would be your roster move, and, and how would you orchestrate the actual lineup on the field? You know, I threw out how <clears throat> Carlos Gomez has been performing and that it, it becomes tricky watching Brandon Nimmo hit or hover around 200 the other night, but people came back out at me about Keon Broxton, and you know what? I immediately switched my, my uh, gear. Uh, they're absolutely right. Brandon Nimmo does stay because of that on-base percentage. Um, the strikeouts are very concerning. They were kind of always there even before this year. But when you're not hitting, you're going to be striking out more, generally speaking. Um, and I, I, so you, you would have to basically try out Carlos Gomez, who has a history of starting in, in the major leagues and well. And – you would have to have Nimmo in the role that he was before he started heating up, which was the fourth outfielder. Um, and I, so that's basically, you know, the more, and I know Keon was talking today after the game about his lack of production and also lack of playing time uh, and talking about how it's not like he started out poorly, but you, you, you know, you have to see the writings on the wall and it's, you know things are not going well when people are very subtly throwing the manager and the, the team under the bus. And, 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 but this is when finger pointing starts. And, and this is, goes back to Callaway. I know I keep uh, you know, looping it around, but you hardly heard this stuff with Terry. And look at me giving Terry some props. I mean, am I wrong here, guys, that generally speaking – you didn't hear anybody go, I don't know why the manager's not playing me all that often. And, like, even when they were losing as much as they, they, they were, maybe it's just me not remembering that this is what I said on episode five uh, about about Terry Collins uh, and, and what he was doing. But, you know, I I, I don't know. I think it, it that goes back to, to Mickey if people are pointing fingers uh, at the hierarchy. Well, a lot there. You know, there's a lot to that. And and I think, Mike, as I go to you, it probably comes right back to the point you're making. It's a poorly constructed roster. People are not being put in situations where they could be most effective. Uh, there's redundancy and bad redundancy on the roster. It's one thing if you have two great third basemen. This, this team just has a lot of bad redundant players. So, Mike, what would you do to address the immediate need of, of Conforto going on the seven-day I.L.? Uh, I, I say this in jest, but I'm going to sit on the fence and complain when things go wrong. How's that? Look, we have these kinds of discussions when you don't deal in premium talent. This is what happens. I always say good players render managers irrelevant and inconsequential. 
pedestrian players, bad players, you know, they put the spotlight on, on the manager. Uh, I'm still in uh, in Nimmo's corner. That's all I'll say about that. Uh, and, Sam, about what you said with regards to Broxton and Terry Collins, would he have done that to him versus Callaway? You know, I, I hear exactly what you're saying, uh, you know, dissension among the ranks. Uh, but a guy like Broxton, you know, he, he's looking to prove himself. He didn't come up through this organization, uh, you know, and he's got a lot to prove. He's probably got a lot of pride uh, and, you know, playing second fiddle or riding the bench just wasn't what he had in mind. And sometimes, you know, uh, people don't know how to suppress those feelings and it just leaks out. So I'm not going to hold that against him. Uh, if he if he was an in-house guy, has he been here for a while, then I would say, yeah, 100%, you know, that reeks of dissension. But sometimes, you know, guys are just looking to get ahead and, you know, put themselves in a, in a, in a better position, that's all. Uh, but, Rich, you know, I, I don't care what they do. They can keep Broxton in right field. They can put Carlos Gomez out there for all I care. Really, it's not going to matter. There's a reason. I always say there's a reason why these players are available. And, shit, now I'm in a bad mood. So, you know, I'm going to have to bring up what Scott Boris says about shopping in the discount aisle. All right? We're dealing with all, you know, non-brand items here. So what difference does it make what they put out there? It's just unfortunate that Conforto and McNeil happen to be getting hurt at the same time, and those are the guys you can least afford to have off the field at this moment in time. So I'm just, like I said, I'm going to sit on the fence, and I'm just going to sit back and complain when things go wrong. <laughs> like, fans, like all fans, like all fans do. <laughs> well, and that's a right we have as fans, right? We can cheer, we can complain, we can do whatever we want. But, you know, we've been dancing around this roster thing, and um, there are so many things to talk about that here's what I'm going to do. As opposed to asking you just to comment on the roster, I'm going to give you specific things, and we'll wheel it around. We'll keep it going. So I think the Mets, if they want to turn this thing around, and let's face it, they're only three and a half games out, and I'm not trying to be Pollyanna, but they're only three and a half games out. The season is not over. I hate that talk in the middle of May. But let's talk about, I think they have to be willing to do some bold things. So I'm going to throw some things out and get you to comment. We'll try to do a round robin here. So, Sam, I'm going to go to you first on this one. Todd Frazier, okay, the guy looks lost. He looks angry. Yes, I know he had, um, I know he had a hit today, big deal. He's hitting about 140 from last, I think it was 146 before today. So he's not doing anything to help the team. He looks like he's betwixt in between when he's up there. He doesn't have a clue what he's doing. I think if they really want to start turning things around, one of the things they have to do is get rid of Todd Frazier and eat the money. They've got Hechevarria. They've got J.D. Davis. They have people who could play third base. If you, you know, sorry for the, for the rude expression, but grow a pair and get rid of Todd Frazier. So thoughts on that? Sam, go first. Uh, yeah. Do you want me to expand? <laughs> expand. Give me your no, thoughts. You I agree. <laughs> No, I I think you're absolutely right. I I've been a fan of Todd Frazier in the past. I really have, and it's unfortunate. But like, go you know, bringing up Brandon Nimmo again. He's batting two oh whatever. 
but he's also in the high threes getting on base. He's doing what, you know, we've been talking about him being able to do, work the count and get on base. Todd Frazier is marginally better with his on-base percentage, and better is not a word that I should have been using with that. He, he's terrible. He's, batting, he's, he's, he's getting on base at like a 175 clip, and they're starting the guy. I, I think that at this point, it's such dead weight of the roster. You only have a few more months to pay him. Yeah, you you gotta you got to take care of that, and you got to take care of that quickly. I agree. Bree, let's go to you. Your thoughts on Frazier? Um, if I could, I would cut him, but, you know, that's the Wilpons' money, $9 million. I don't believe they will because they're cheap and they're not going to let that money go to waste. Um, but it seems like every time the Mets – sign a guy he doesn't perform for the Mets it's just a Mets thing um you know when he was with the Reds and the Yankees he would hit for power and he'd get on base that was his thing always get on base walks home runs he always had that low batting average but he got on base now with the Mets he has no batting average he's not hitting for power he's getting hurt last year was the first time in his career that he ended up on the um, injured list and now he's not even getting on base. So at this point, like you guys said, um, he is dead weight. The only thing he's got going for him is his defense because his defense is slightly better than Davis's, but Davis has a better bat. So I'd cut him if it was up to me. Well, Mike, I'll let you take this next, but let me let me bring some numbers your way. He's batting 148, and his OBP is, are you sitting down, 164. Mike, what do you do with Frazier? Even if you wanted to keep him as a late-inning defensive replacement and, and keep him for pinch-hitting duties, you still can't because of, because of what we said, the redundancy issue. So he just doesn't fit, and, and, and the numbers just don't support, you know, him maintaining a spot on this roster. Uh, and just circling back a little bit to what Bree brought up, you know, the Mets have always – been in the habit of taking other teams, number two, three, two guys, or number three guy, bringing them here and asking him to be an alpha. That's a huge problem, you know. And that's exactly what a guy like Frazier was. That's exactly what a guy like Jay Bruce was, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So again, perception. You know, we we ask these players to come here and be alpha when they were never alpha in their previous places of employment. So uh, real quick, Rich, you know, like I said, even if they wanted to keep him as a defensive replacement and, and a pinch hitter, the, the redundancy says no. Cut bait. I say cut bait tonight. Um, all right, next. Let's talk about Brandon Nimmo. Um, look, I'm a fan. I love the guy. I really do. But, you know, he has a 345 on base percentage, which is acceptable. 202 batting average, but he strike his strikeouts are – beyond epidemic. I don't even know I don't even know how to put it into words. And and strikeouts, I know the you know a lot of people say that it's just an out. I disagree. A strikeout is not a productive out. There is such a thing as a productive out. I think Nimmo I'd make a tough decision on him too. I'd send him down. Let him let him get a better feel. You know, he doesn't look like he's in command of what he's doing up there. He takes way too many called third strikes. I think that's another move you have to make. Do something bold. 
bring up Rajai Davis for a while and let Nimmo get his head on straight down in the minor leagues. Bree, you're my leadoff hitter on this one. What do you do with Nimmo? I'm sorry, I'm sorry yeah, did you? <laughs> so that's Bree. Bree first on this one. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I mean, it is a tough decision now that you have, you know, a lot of your outfielders hurt. Um, I'd say, honestly, you probably have to make him work out of his slump at this point. I know um, it was a couple weeks ago or maybe a month ago, he was starting to heat up, and then he got hit in the hand. And that's what happened last year, too. He got hit in the hand as soon as he started getting hot, and everything went downhill from there. So I think it is mental. Um, I think he just needs to, you know, get out of his slump by, you know, staying in the lineup, put him low in the lineup, and make him, you know, hit out of it. All right, so you're an advocate of keeping him on the roster, let him fight his way out of it. Sam, what do you do with Nimmo, if anything? You know, I I know I uh, mentioned it when we were talking about some other roster moves, but I I think, you know, going back to what I said, Carlos Gomez has an opt-out on June 1st. I kind of I'm half halfway in between what Bree just said, you know, that he needs to some more hits here and there. It, it's just that the average has not been peaking up, and he keeps striking out. So I think he's relegated to fourth outfielder duties. Make him uh, be in the Dominic Smith role of, of late pinch hitter. Try to be that that uh, player that he was when he first came up, which was give a little bit of a spark off the bench. And you're going to need some speed. Um, get Carlos Gomez out there. You know, obviously Carlos Gomez might not perform as, you know, he has in AAA because he hasn't been performing over the last few years and at the major league level, ironically, since he got traded, not getting traded to us. So, um, yeah, I, I think that's what you've got to do. Uh, cut bait with Keon Broxton, which may be a mood factor right now with Conforto going to the, the injured list. Uh, IL still sounds a little weird for me to say out loud, and um, yeah, I, I and and just shuffle it around, get get Nimmo onto the bench, and and have Gomez uh, see what he can do right now. All right, so Nimmo fourth outfielder, but keep him on the major league roster. Mike, what do you think of Nimmo? What 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 should happen here? My thing with Gomez is. I know you asked about Nimble, but my thing about Gomez, Carlos Gomez, is I'm a forward-moving creature. So, as far as I'm concerned, been there, done that. That's my position there. Nimble, I'm kind of caught in between. I'm agreeable with what Bree says, Rich. I'm agreeable with what you say. I'm agreeable with either plan. I'd prefer to see him, you know, uh, be allowed to hit his way out of this. But, Rich, if they send him down, you know, and, and tell him to get his head straightened, on, straightened out over there, I'm agreeable to that. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm somewhere in the middle. Okay, fair enough. All right, next guy, and I think next two guys, I think I know Bree's opinion because I was checking out your blog before before the show. Um, Dom, Dom Smith will go to you first. Um, l- let me tell you what I think of Dom. I really like Dom Smith. I love his attitude. Um, I like the fact that he's lost so much weight. He, he's really learned how to – not learned. He's always been a good good hitter, especially a good contact hitter. Uh, he just doesn't have a, a future here. And – in my opinion, I don't think making him, you know, forcing him to learn to play the outfield is really fair to him. It's not fair to, to the team either. Pete Alonso is your first baseman. I think the Mets have to accept that. And sometimes the best value a guy has is as a trade piece. 
and that's what I would do with Dom. But Reed, please take it away on Dom Smith. What, what's your what would you do with him? Um, I'd keep him in his current role. I think he's doing a good job off the bench for the Mets. Um, having him as the only left-handed, um, you know, pinch hitter for the team, I I like that in his in that role. Um, you know, he has a positive mindset, and ever since he you know fixed his sleeping problem, um, you know, he looks better. He's performing better. Um, and there's some good camaraderie with the team. Him and you know Pete Alonso are like buddy buddy. Everyone seems to love Dom, and you know the fans love him too. I like him in his current role. Um, you know, he's he's a power threat off the bench. And when they sent him down last week, you know, there was a situation in the I think it was a it might have been the ninth. I don't know if it was for certain, but you know they needed a left-handed batter, and and they didn't have that. And you know they could they could have you know came back and won the game, but they didn't have him off the bench when they sent him down. So um, to summarize it, I think. I like him in his role currently, and I think depth is good, and I wouldn't want the Mets to trade him. So that was the game in San Diego, and it was the ninth. You're absolutely right. That's when they had no lefties on the bench, and uh, and everybody said they if they had Dom, you know, that would have been a perfect spot, so you're right on that. Mike, what do you do with Dom? Their record in July is going to dictate much of what they do. I'm with Bree. You ride this out. You give Nimmo a chance. You give Dom Smith a chance. At least try to create some playing time for him. Uh, because come the trade deadline, you know, depending on what position the Mets are in, BBW can't come off as a pusher. Teams have, You have to make teams want these guys. And you can only do that by furnishing them with playing time and hoping they excel. Otherwise, you know, BBW is going to come off as, as just that, a pusher. And everyone's going to say, you know, take your dope somewhere else. All right, Sam, you're up. Dom Smith, what do you do? I have been a fan of Dom Smith ever since they drafted him. And it would be painful to finally see that, you know, I've, the, the, the player I've been rooting for since he was there on the draft floor um, leave the Mets. I have a Smith 22 T-shirt that I customized. So, you know, I, I certainly have a, a, a horse in this race, um, but I can't deny that Pete Alonso isn't your number one starter right now at first base, obviously. Um, I really like the role he's currently in, and I think that if they do keep performing properly, uh, eventually, if they're, if they're contending and you're trying to make this team better, you have to consider all your options, even if it's going to take away from the bench, which is very valuable, as you could see the other night when he gave uh, um, uh, us a excuse me, he gave us a, an extra run to to you know go with in the ninth inning. So I am kind of halvesies on it. You know, I I, I think you got to be careful with the type of deal you make, but you sh- certainly should definitely trade him if the deal is right. All right, fair enough. All right, next up on the hit parade is uh, the man who is everybody's favorite whipping person right now, and that would be Keon Broxton. Um, the, he swung through a 92-mile-an-hour fastball to end the game, very eerily similar to the game on April 17th against the Phillies when he did the same thing with the bases loaded. That was a harder pitch. It wasn't 92, but um, it was right down the middle. 
Um, he did not help himself in the eyes of the fans with his comments after the game about, you know, I don't know what they want and stuff like that. It, it kind of looked like a disgruntled player, which is never good. Um, so, Mike, I'm going to go to you first on Keon, but let me just say a couple words here that I, I think are going to be highly unpopular. I think I know Bree's opinion already, too. But um, to me, I think Keon is much better than he has played. And here's my thought, and it goes back to roster construction. You don't need Keon Broxton and Juan Ligaris. So if the Mets found a taker for Juan Ligaris, and I think they would trade him first because they stand to save more money, I'd, I'd say fine. Keon, you're the guy. We're, you're going to get more playing time, and I do think he'll be better. If they got rid of Keon and said, okay, Ligaris, you're the guy, fine. They can't have both anymore. It's nonsensical to me that they have both those guys who are essentially very similar players. But I, if they chose to, to divest of Ligaris, I'd be fine with Broxton. I, I'm not the, you know, get rid of Broxton, don't put him on the plane to Miami thing. But let's go around. Mike, what would you do with Broxton? I'm with you, Rich. You know, I'm okay with that. I'm agreeable to that. You know, there's there's some attachment to Ligaris because he's been with us for so long. But, uh, you know, change. You have to embrace change. And if I, – I, I don't know. I, I'm kind of stuck on that one. I, I'm, you know, I, I'd have to circle back to this is what happens when you deal with pedestrian players. You have these kind of debates, and it's a little bit flustering. Understood. Sam, what would you do with Keon? Are you on the, you know, get Keon off the team today thing, or, or what are you thinking? I mean, the way he's performing now, I think there could be a chance that he clears waivers and goes to AAA. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, considering that, you know, he did have a good season, and some people might want to give him a, a shot to be playing more often. Maybe the Marlins have a, a, a place for him on the roster. I don't know. Um, but a, as of right now, I think you got to take your chance. Is the bottom line. Take your chances to see if he clears waivers. And if not, can't you always pull him back or, or figure out a deal or something like that? That's the way this works. So, DFA. Okay. So you're in the DFA camp. Bree, talk to us about Keon. Yeah, I'd have to agree. I'd uh, DFA him at this point because he has no value. They said his defense was going to be good in the offseason. I mean, he showed that when he was on the Brewers and you know playing consistently. But he's looked lost. He's taking bad routes on balls. Everything's getting over his head. Um, he can't hit. He can't get on base, so he can't steal. Um, and him complaining today was like the last straw. Like you don't, you don't say that, and you don't throw your manager under the bus like that. Um, when you know Dom Smith and Brennan Nimmo were in that situation, uh, they were positive about that. They were grateful about even getting a major league at bat. So you don't say that, but um, this situation actually reminds me of uh, Jose Reyes complaining last year that he wasn't getting enough playing time. And you know what the Mets did? They started playing Jose Reyes because the PR looked bad that their all-time shortstop was not getting starts. So Reyes started playing, and it looks like Keon Broxton's going to start playing with all these injuries, unfortunately. But, um, yeah, I'd DSA in this. I were the manager. Well, if I were the and, <laughs> you know, the one of the, the cold hard facts is that both Rajai Davis and Carlos Gomez are performing. You know, Davis hitting 290, Gomez leaves hitting 330 in AAA, and they both have the opt-outs on June 1st. And here you have a Keon Broxton who, you know, is hitting one 130-ish 
and uh, defensively he's been oof. And um, here's a guy who's robbing home runs every other day, and he's letting balls go over his head as a Met. So it is hard. But to me, again, I'll say it one more time, it goes back to roster construction. I think he would be better if he were playing more. He would play more if they didn't have two Keon Broxtons and Juan Lagares and Keon Broxton. So it goes to roster construction, in my opinion. Um, all right, one more guy to talk about individually, and then we'll get into a couple of other things. Um, Robinson Cano. Now, he had a nice double today. But, um, you know, Cano has been up and down. He, he started off hot, then he got really cold, got a little warmer, then, then he got cold again. Um, so is this another Robbie Alomar? Um, is Cano done, so to speak? Uh, so we'll talk about that. So, Sam, what are your thoughts, what are your observations on Cano at this point? It troubles me because I really want him to perform well, obviously. But, you know, I, I just I wish that the Robinson, the, the uh, Robbie Alomar comparisons would stop because Cano has never shown to have the attitude that Robbie Alomar ever did uh, uh, with the, the Mets, always did with the Mets, uh, you know. Um, I just think that he's, he's pressing a little too hard. Maybe the pressure that... Uh, uh, Mike was talking about last week of him being, you know, one of the leaders on this team. Maybe he listened to our podcast and was just like, you know, they're right. I better get on it. And he's just been pressing even harder, considering that when he told him to step up, he he was performing a little bit better. Um, I would love it if Robinson Cano was listening to the podcast, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's not happening. Uh, and he's probably not listening to too many Mets podcasts, if any. But I, I – think that he's I, – I, I have hope that it's going to be the usual thing. I mean, he's only hitting – I mean, now he must be back to like 250-something, but the last time I was looking at it, he was hitting 261. And I, I, I think that that's, you know, par for the course when it comes to Robinson Cano uh, steadying, you know, steadily climbing throughout the season. And I have a feeling as the year heats up, so will Robinson Cano. I want to think so, because so I really like Robinson Cano, but there are times, I'm not sure, you know, I think it was you, Bree, who said about getting hit on the mm-hmm. hand with Nimmo. Cano got hit on the yes. hand twice. Do you think it has anything to do with it? Yes, I think right. so, because he was, he was getting so hot at that point. I think he raised his batting average at that point by 40, I don't know what the range was, but it was a significant amount. Um, and then he gets hit on the hand in St. Louis. It's not even a hit by a pitch. They called it a swing, which that irritated me, and I remember it because I was watching it on Easter. Um, so that's when that was. But I don't think he's going to continue in, in this mini slump he's, he's got going. Um, he has too sweet of a swing. He has, you know, over 2,500 hits for a reason. Um, you know, I always say this as the weather heats up, so do players that, you know, the ball is going to fly in that hot air. Um, so I don't expect him to continue this. And he's a, he's a, he's never batted under 270 in his career. So if he's batting 250, 260 now, you know, the lowest he's going to hit is 270, fingers crossed. So, yeah, I don't expect him to continue this slump. I, I don't either, and I, I want to believe that at 36, he sells a lot in the tank. Well, let me, anybody who wants to comment on this one, do you think that Cano's being overused? Anybody jump in. Do you think maybe 
the plan was, you know, I remember Mickey saying this to Francesa, if we use Cano 120 games, that's perfect and all that. I don't know. I don't have the numbers in front of me. Actually, I do have the numbers, the number of games that he's played. So if I took a look at this really quickly, um, he has played in 38 games. The Mets have played in 42. So he's not getting a lot of time off. And um, yeah. do you think, does anybody think that maybe he's being overused and as a 36-year-old man he just needs a little more time off? Talk to me on that one. I mean, that's a great point, dude. Uh, <laughs> I think that they need to preach what they – they need to practice what they preach. That's the bottom line. Anybody else want to jump in? I think it demonstrates yeah, think... a little bit of desperation on the Mets' part that they actually play him this much after saying that they wanted to manage his playing time. Uh, actually, 39 games, uh, Rich. I'm looking at NewYorkMets.com and the team's updated. 39 games out of, what, 42. Uh, my whole gig is that my whole gig is that he needs to make contact first. He averages 86 strikeouts per season throughout his career. Right now, he's on pace to break 140, I believe it is. So, uh, you know, maybe this is the natural disintegration of a 36-year-old. Maybe not. I don't know. Uh, I'd like to see him heat up, but uh, that remains to be seen. Bree, go ahead. It sounded like you wanted to jump in here on the on the Cano overuse question. <laughs> yeah, um, correct me if I'm wrong. I think the Mets are going to play, you know, 20 straight games without a day off. Um, correct. You know, I think he definitely needs a scheduled day off, have uh, McNeil at second, um, or McNeil in left field. You can have, you know, Dave. I, has Davis ever played second? I don't think so, right? No, so not that I know. McNeil. McNeil's your second baseman then, uh, Davis at third, and then, you know, figure out the outfield from there. But he definitely needs a scheduled um, day off at some point during those 20 games. And and even if they did give him one, that's not pacing to 40 40 off days a year. And and so they're not doing what they themselves said was the prescription for a good Robinson Cano, and it's frustrating. And I think Mike Mike hit the nail on the head. It reeks of desperation. It reeks of – you know, we have this guy who's probably a Hall of Famer. Sure, we got him at the tail end of his career, but, hey, dude, go out there every day. It doesn't matter how tired you are because we're desperate, and, and that's never good. So, Mike, uh, anyone and, else on and this? And also, and, yeah, let me, let me also mention that those games off are because he got hit on the hand. That's a good point. Yeah. He missed That's a really good point. Mm-hmm. And I do Can buy I into that them? as far as Cano and Nimmo. I, I buy into, you know, getting hit in the hands. I think – Maybe Cano strikeouts attest to that. Maybe, perhaps. Bree? Yes. Um, on top of that, I think in the off season when the Mets said, you know, they're going to get him these days off, I think that their initial plan was when they signed Lowry, they would have a, you know, a rotation of Lowry coming in playing second and moving different parts of the infield around, like McNeil at second, McNeil at third. But Lowry got hurt. And now they have to start Cano every day because, you know, they're, they're losing pieces. Frazier was hurt to begin the year, so they had to play in that second, unfortunately, every day. I think all of that, you know, when you think about it, he's 36. He got hit on the hand twice. Um, he hasn't had time off other than, like, Sam, great point on that. His games he has had off have been because he was hit on the hand. And uh, and they don't have the, – the, the backup plan isn't in place. Lowry was the backup plan. That's an excellent point as well. And, of course, I, I don't think we're going to see him until August. So, um, all right, 
So we have a couple more things to do in the podcast here. Uh, by my count, we have three more topics I want to get to. So let's go to one of them, which is last Friday there was this powwow between uh, Jeff Wilpon, Brody Van Wagenen, and Mickey Calloway. So obviously we don't know exactly what was said. We weren't there. But let's have a little fun. So, Sam, we'll start with you. If you had a spy camera in that room, give us a few bullet points on what you think that meeting was all about. What do you think was said in that meeting? I don't think anything along the lines of get us better players and we'll perform better was ever uttered to the owner of the team. Um, <laughs> but it might as well have been. Um, you know, it, it, it just it goes back to, to fonts. Like, like you, you're, you're – sending mixed signals here if you're you're okay even as if you're if you're the chief executive officer the, the, the chief operating officer and you're allowing font to be run out there then you're not playing the the the, the cards right uh, um but what I, what i believe was probably said was that you guys have performed well with the roster in place uh there really isn't any reason you shouldn't continue to perform well um, if, you know, let's mix and match better. Let's do this. Let's do that. Uh, what, you know, and, and I, I don't think Jeff Wilpon is probably playing the get better or fired card. I, weirdly enough, I don't think he's, he's playing that card. I think a constructive conversation was actually had, uh, amongst the three of them. And it was trying to figure out how to put all the pieces in place. Now, you know, spelling Robinson Cano for a day would probably be a good idea. Today would have been a prime example, even if he actually gave us a better chance to win on the offensive side of things. So, you know, I I, I don't have anything, like, overly creative to say exactly about what was uh, uh, spoken, but, you know, I, I'm cynical for sure when it comes to the name Jeff and uh, next to uh, Wilpon. <laughs> And, you know, Sam, just as an FYI, you've said Wilmer Font many times, and I haven't made any stupid puns, so I'm controlling myself well. Um, but that's a story for another day as well. Have at it. Um, Have at it, man. No, I, I can't. I'm not in a good enough mood, actually, with the way they're playing. So, um, Mike, wind back the film in your spy camera. What did they talk about? I can't imagine, Rich. But I have a feeling it was two against one. Like I said, back you know, during spring training, uh, no secret, it's been reported, Brody and Jeff previously had a friendship prior to being named general manager. And I do, in fact, unlike Sam, believe that this was all about putting Mickey Calloway on the carpet. Brody knows Jeff isn't going to increase spending. Jeff knows what Brody's up to. Mickey isn't exactly Brody's kind of guy, at least in my opinion. And I don't think he would hesitate replacing him, but he needs probable cause. He he needs cause first. And I do believe wholeheartedly that that meeting was about putting Mickey on the carpet. You know, when they say that wasn't broached, that's the kiss of death, usually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think you may be right on that. I think it may have been not not a lot of threats, so to speak, but I no, think it may have. Threat, but you know, 
you know. Yeah, you it'd know, be like, look, things. we have expectations here. You know, what's happening isn't acceptable, Mickey. Um, you know, read between the lines, but that, that's what I think happened. So, Bree, now it's your turn. So l- let's imagine there's one of those paintings with the eyes cut out and your eyes were watching this meeting in the private room. What were they talking about? I mean, I wouldn't look much into it. I don't think that, you know, they were saying his job was in jeopardy. Um, but uh, Mickey has made some subliminal um, comments in his interviews, basically saying, like, you know, we we need help. Um and I think, you know, Brody and the Wilpons are watching what he's saying. And maybe in in the uh, meeting he voiced his opinion about why the he- heck are we having Font out there when, you know, Dallas Keuchel is a free agent still. You know, Kimbrell in the bullpen, like, he maybe he mentioned that. We don't know. But, um, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if Brody decided when the Mets go on their next uh, West Coast trip to – fire their manager at 3 o'clock in the morning like uh, our former GM did. Yeah, yeah, I think it was basically laying out the expectations and expressing that. I think it it ties this entire podcast together, actually. I think it it was basically saying, look, we talked a tough game. We think we're better than this. We have to be better than this. Maybe they didn't come out and say, Mickey, you have until Memorial Day. But I think it might have been one of those things that was not even alluded to, but it was laid out there that they're, they expect better and let's go get better. And if they don't, then implications will happen. That's what I think happened as well. Um, especially, right. where it concerns, especially where it concerns the pitching. You know, I'll yeah. talk back to Sandy Alderson's double-barreled attack with Mickey Calloway and Dave Ireland, trying to get them both together on this pitching staff. You know what I mean? And yep. it's not working out to, you know, anybody's real satisfaction. Yeah, you're right. And, that, and, that's, another, and that's another thing to bring up, the fact that this was not Brody's hire. Um, I, I kind of, going back to uh, kind of alluding to the history part of our uh, segment of our podcast, and, and mind you, we're talking, I'm about to bring up uh, 12 years after 1926, if you will, uh, which is uh, the number, of course, of our, that uh, corresponds to our podcast. But um, when Larry McPhail was brought in to the Brooklyn Dodgers, he kept Burley Grimes, who was the manager in 1937, on board, while Leo DeRocher was brought in to still play shortstop, even though everybody knew he had aspirations of being a manager. At some point, they were they they were very much still on the losing end most of the games in 1938. Uh, but Larry McPhail was starting to drum up publicity and starting to – he had the first night game ever, uh, I believe, in the uh, – it wasn't in the National League, but it was the first night game in New York City. And it turned out to be Johnny Vandermeer's second straight no-hitter for Cincinnati. Um, and then Babe Ruth was brought in, uh, even though uh, he wasn't going to be the manager. Nobody was going to make him the manager ever, uh, but people talked about the fact that Babe Ruth wanted to eventually be the manager. And then by the year after, in 1939, Leo DeRocher was manager, and Burley Grimes had been moved on. So, you know, I, I, I continuously think about that fact and how there's a lot of, a lot of times 
managers are slightly lamed up because they weren't hired by the new GM. And it, it's kind of similar in this fashion that it's like, you know, make or break the year for that, that, uh, that manager. And if he doesn't do it, then they bring somebody in who does. I think that's, we've talked about that since the off season, right? That how, how long would Mickey's leash be? Because it's not Brody's guy. And that's, that's like you said, you, you know, you talk history it's been like that since day one in baseball. You know, the new GM, existing manager. Okay, buddy, I don't really know you. I'm not necessarily going to keep you here unless you dazzle me. And Mickey's not dazzling at this point. All right, so one, one more topic to get to on the current Mets. Then, then we'll do number 26. Then we'll do the last word. So that, that's what we have on, on, uh, on deck to use a baseball term. All right, so the Mets, statistically, there is no quarter point. Um, but they played 42 games, and it's pretty much the quarter point. So now, uh, what I'm going to ask all of you is, they have three quarters of the season to go. You're all doctors. Write me a prescription for the New York Mets. What's it going to take to get this team turned around and and get them to maybe at least to some degree live up to Brody's uh, bravado from the offseason? So let's see. Sam, let's start with you. So what's your prescription for the last 75% of the season? That's a great question. Um, runners in scoring position. I mean, this has been dogging them since 1962. Um, I, I will bring it up on air. I'm not sure the last time we might have brought it up on air. But 56 of the 120 losses in 1962, they either had the tying run on base or on deck when they lost. That has basically been in the foundation, in the DNA of this team. And it's 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 cute then, you know. We got baseball back in National League in the National League in New York. That's great. But you you've got to get these guys in just like today, just like you were talking about, Rich. You you have to start stop leaving these runners on base, and you have to figure out some sort of formula. And they they did last year playing small ball after Sandy Alderson was unfortunately diagnosed once more and had to to uh, approach his, his cancer. Um, they, they figured out how to do it, and they need to go back to that, play some small ball, because Mickey's kind of got gotten away from that. And, and there, he showed signs that he was learning, and they were playing a different game than the station to station. But there's nothing that's going on right now that – makes me think they can do that. But that's what they need to do. That's the prescription. I love it. You know me. I love that. All right, Mike, Dr. Mike, write me a prescription for the Mets. It's funny you say, Dr. Mike. They, you know, health all of a sudden is an issue. So, A, they need to remain healthy. B, we already touched upon it, time management. I was just looking over some of the games played at least five players have the 39 games played. So they're going to have to manage that better. Uh, with Ramos in particular, he's not going to be able to, you know, go out there 150 games, 140 games, even maybe 130. They need to manage him a little bit better along with other players, as we said. And you know what? Bottom line, some of these, some of these guys just got to perform. Mickey can't go out there and play for them. He can't hit for them, and he can't pitch for them. That being said, pitching, that goes back to BVW. 
bullpens are ever evolving, and he's going to have to keep on top of that. No team starts a season with the bullpen almost entirely intact. No team. Very few, if any. So he's going to need to stay on top of that. But the big deal that we all want him to make, I don't think is going to happen. I think the future is going to hinge on Anthony Kay. Uh, you know, fair or unfair, he's going to be the one who's going to allow them a little bit of flexibility with regards to, say, Lugo or Gesellman, who's going to start, who's going to be in the bullpen. He's going to be the guy who's going to offer them that flexibility if, you know, he, he pitches up to snuff. Uh, as far as going off campus, I don't see that happening. So, you know, keep an eye on Anthony Kay. He's having a real good season at A. So uh, I would say by summer, you know, we, we should start here. We should start hearing his name a lot more, either be it called up. And who knows? BBW might even trade this guy as well. Who knows anymore? Who knows? But that's my overall prescription, performance, health, time management, and see how, you know, they negotiate Anthony Kay, whether they keep him or trade him, and if they keep him, how that translates into what they do with the bullpen and starting rotation, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I like everything you said. I like the fact that you mentioned Anthony Kay because, look, who knows what he's going to be. You never know what a prospect's going to be, and he's in double A at this point. But it solves, it could solve some of what we talked about earlier, which is um, they, you, you cannot, for the love of all that's holy, run people like Oswalt, Gagno, and Font out there. You, you're basically waving the white flag every fifth day and saying, you know what, everybody – We'll, we'll lose, we'll consciously lose 35 games and then try to, you know, do, see what we do in the rest because we have nobody to pitch that. We have nobody to pitch in that fifth starting spot. So if Anthony Kay could come in and step and stabilize that, get, you know, give the, Met, the Mets a constant fifth starter who is at least serviceable, you're right, Mike, that would be a quantum leap forward over the, the dredge that we have right now in that spot. So, Bree, this is your chance. Um, you've seen a quarter of the season, and I'll quote the infamous my fellow Connecticut homie Bobby Valentine and, and say that people used to ask Bobby Valentine, when do you know what you have? And he would say a quarter of the way through the season, about 40 games. So you've seen, enough, you've seen 42 games. Bree, what's your prescription for the Mets for the, for the remaining 75%? I think the Mets need to be resilient. I mean, after the seventh inning, when they're trailing, they don't come back. It's like they have no pulse. Um, well, last actually today, they had the bases loaded and a chance to come back, and they just couldn't get the job done. That's the thing. They can't get the job done. I look at the score box at the end of the game. I see, oh, look, the Mets had, you know, 10, 12 hits. Oh, but they only had, you know, two, three runs. So they're getting hits, but they're not getting timely clutch hits. Like uh, someone mentioned before, you know, Cano, he can bat two for four, but, okay, he's two for four, batted 500 on the day, but in a clutch situation, he strikes out and grounds into a double play. So that's the big thing. Uh, they need to be clutch, um, and they need to be healthy. Um, and, yes, that's my uh, prescription. Well, that's consistent, though, You because know, Sam talked about clutch, you know, small ball, getting the clutch hits, and talk about the DNA of this team. Has ne- this team somehow always seems – always seems to lack that big hit. Um, you talked about health. Mike talked about health. So we're all seeing basically the same things. 
realistically, they're not going to go out there, and, and they're probably not going to sign Keuchel or Kimbrell even after the June draft, which is painful for me to say, but I think we all know in our hearts that's not going to happen. They're probably not going to pull off a major midseason trade. So they're going to have to go with what they have. They're going to have to stay, you know, get healthier and play better, execute better, not – you know, not end games with the bases loaded and, you know, and the, and the potential winning run on second base twice with a guy striking out. They're going to have to just capitalize and, you know, make more of the resources they have because the cavalry, you know, to use a cliche, the cavalry is probably not coming. All right. So two more things to do here. Um, this is episode you number 20. You triggered my 2009 hatred, man, when you said <laughs> By the way, all I had was flashbacks of Omar Minaya just being like, yeah, we'll be fine once the cavalry returns. <sighs> Sorry, man. I, I hate to give you a uh, Mets. So a friend of mine calls it post-traumatic Mets disorder. So um hate, hate to it's trigger that. right, of course. <laughs> so, all right. We, um, we're going to do number 26 now, and, and Bree, for your benefit, being the first time with us, I think we, you know, we, we uh, gave you a little bit of a tip on this. We like to talk about one or two Mets who have worn the number corresponding to the episode of the podcast, and just, you know, if you want to mm-hmm. talk about the statistics, that's fine. If you want to talk about your personal feelings on that player, that's fine. Just have a little fun with it. And I do want to go to you first here on number 26, because I think... Um, you know, Mike, uh, Sam, and I may have a little more history to go into some of the deeper 26s. So, as you look at the Mets who have worn 26, would you have any, anything you'd like to say about any of them? Fernando Martinez, um, okay. big Mets prospect. There was so much hype surrounding him. I remember when he got called up, and he was supposed to be—he was supposed to be amazing for the team, and he just never panned out. Um, and then the other guy, Kevin Pawecki, which now he's on the Indians. But those are the two I remember because I was only born in 1995. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, no, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, so, Sam, we'll go to you next. We'll go uh, chronologically here. So, Sam, number 26, who jumps out to you? It's got to be Kingman. I was looking at it, and I was like, this really is a very lackluster list, but – then you see Dave Kingman's name, and even though he was kind of he's kind of a polarized character in the history of uh, the New York Mets, man could he crush it, man could he crush it. And I know uh, he was on his way to potentially breaking the home run record. And was it 1975, guys? But unfortunately, he got hurt. 76. 76. He got 76. hurt. Jammed up his thumb. Re- Rico Bronia is another one. Uh, just seeing Rico Bronia's name um, makes me think about uh, how how many times I've heard people talk about the late 90s and talk about Rico Bronia being one of their favorite players on some of the more mediocre Mets teams. Uh, Jason Phillips, who doesn't look like he was number 26 all that long, but he, you know, it's a name that jumps out from that era to me. Jay So, uh, who was for uh, two years, was number 26. Hernandez, who was brought in to take us to the promised land with his playoff acumen. Unfortunately, him and Pedro Martinez could not play for the 2006 playoff teams of the New York Mets. Um, And, uh, yeah, that's basically, you know, of course, Tom Goodwin, who has just been recently, who was recently – 
a a um, over the first base. He was he was a pretty. You know, I I didn't I can't really say anything bad about him and the job he did as a first base coach. Uh, Kevin Plavecki, what can you say? Unfortunately, it didn't pan out, which is a phrase uttered too many times with the New York Mets. <laughs> All right, Mike, take it away. You know, Plavecki. Out of anybody listening out there, raise your hand if you thought that was a good draft pick, a catcher out of college. Almost everybody should be raising their hand. Raise my hand. My hand is raised. Okay, but he didn't pan out, like Sam says. Uh, Obviously, Rich, you know, Kong, Sky King. 76, you know, I, I convinced myself that the Mets, they at least should have finished a lot closer than they did. They came in, what, third place that season, Rich, or second place? But they finished with 86 third. wins. It was yep. their highest ever win total to that point, second only to 1959. And if Dave Kingman didn't get hurt, I think the, the Mets stood a good chance of at least, you know, a, a better show against the Philadelphia Phillies who won the division that season. I, I will always convince myself of that. Rich, I don't know how you feel about that, but, you know, I, I'll go down swinging on that one. And Terry Leach, nobody's mentioned him yet. Terry Leach was a damn good pitcher, wasn't he? He was. He was a side armor. You know, he was. Um, he basically showed his back to the hitter right before he delivered the ball, threw really softly. Um, you know, he was probably in the upper 80s, um, but he had a couple of really good years. And uh, let me see if I can pick one more name off of it. Fernando, I reboard him up. Fernando Martinez, right up there with one of, you know, amongst our all-time all-hype prospect list. Uh, right up there. Uh, with, who, who's the other one that comes to mind? Millage. Wow, he's one, but there's another one that goes even farther back. Uh, Alex Ochoa. That's the yes. one, Alex Ochoa. Man, where these guys are overhyped to what? Kevin Tapani, wasn't he included in the Frank Viola deal? Wasn't Kevin Tapani included in the Frank Viola deal? He was, Tapani and Aguilera. And Frank Viola's on here. Right. Take it away, Rich. All right, so 26. As I look at this list, um, again, I've got to go with my Connecticut homeboy, Rico Bronia, um, who – Really, I mean, he had a couple of really good years with the Mets. He slick, slick fielding first baseman, a little bit of power, you know. And if you remember in 1995, the strike year, the Mets got off to a disastrous start, but they were very, very good in the second half of the season. And I think they had the best record in the division in the second half of the season. And Bronia was a big part of that, you know, playing a great first base, hitting, I don't have the number in front of me, 280-ish, and hitting some home runs. So Bronia jumps to mind. And then there's never been a more polarizing figure to ever put a Mets uniform on, uniform on than Dave Kingman. And I know you've all mentioned him. I have to do it as well. Some people loved Kingman because every time he came up, there was a chance you could see a 500-foot home run. I mean, the guy had that kind of prodigious power. And he also, remember, he started his career as a pitcher. He was a, he was a pitcher in the minor leagues in the Giants organization. They made him an outfielder. But yep. – some people loved Kingman because he was exciting. Other people couldn't stand Kingman. I'm in the second camp who, although he would hit a 500 foot home run once or twice a week, he would strike out basically every other at bat. I think his career batting average is about 220. 
So, yeah, yeah, Kingman, because he was so polarizing and he was so hot in 76, Mike, I think you're right, that if the Mets had him all year, they might have done a little better, maybe challenged for the division. But Kingman, uh, a couple quick things on Kingman. You know, the, Keith Hernandez tells the story all the time that when Keith was traded to the Mets in 83 and he was putting on the uniform in Montreal to play his first game as a Met, Kingman walked up to him and shook, stuck his hand out and said, thank you. And Keith looked at him like, what do you mean? And Kingman said, you're my, you're my ticket out of here because you're a first baseman. I'm fine. They're finally going to get rid of me. He hated being a Met the first time around, and then he went to the Cubs and had a couple of great years, signed with the Mets as a free agent. Uh, remember, Mike, he gave all the writers pens? Do you yep, remember that? He yeah, he sure did. Yep. So he signs as a Met after hating New York, hating the media, comes back, gives them all pens as gifts and said, you know, this is from me to you. Let bygones be bygones. Let's have a good relationship. And what, was it a month later? He hated New York again, and he couldn't oh, wait yeah. to get out. And yeah. um, so Kingman, very polarizing figure. Um, you know, uh, I, never I was not a fan, but I have a very good friend of mine who loved the guy. I, I was never a fan. So that he'd be, bro- making, he'd be making a fortune today. Oh he's my exactly God! With this <laughs> he's exactly what baseball wants today. They don't care about strikeouts. They, you know, some about analytics that drive me crazy. Now that we're here, a strikeout is better than grounding into a double play. That's analytics for you. <laughs> so I have one more to comment on that nobody has mentioned. I'm going to make a say a quick word about Billy Taylor. In 1999, the Mets went out and got Billy Taylor because the Mets were contending. And they traded Jason Isringhausen for him, okay? Now, I don't have Taylor's numbers in front of me either, but it seems to me that Billy Taylor never got a batter out in the 1999 season. He was so awful. And what does Isringhausen do? Isringhausen goes on to become one of the best closers of his time. And the Mets traded him as a deadline deal for Billy Taylor. It was just a tremendously awful deal by Steve Phillips who made several of them over the years. So, um, so thank you, Steve Phillips, said sarcastically. So, okay. So we are on our last segment, and, Bree, um, what we do is we do a last word, which could be a last word or a last phrase. Um, you know, whatever you're thinking right now, what you might want to see the Mets do, you know, if you want to express your anger about the Mets, whatever it is, we just do a last word. So to sort of warm you up a little bit, I'll have one of the guys go first. So, Sam, why don't you go first? What's your last word for tonight? My last word is consistency. We're very uh, consistently inconsistent. We need to figure out how to not do that anymore. <laughs> so, uh, you know, LOB, uh, turn them into hits with RISP. <laughs> Sounds like an episode of Sesame Street. Nicely done, Sam. Um, <laughs> all right. So, Bree, having heard that, what might be your last word tonight? Last word is sweep. The Mets need to sweep the Marlins this upcoming series because they have the Grom going, they have Syndergaard, and then um, I believe they have Wheeler or they have Font. Um, but either they're way, saying Matt, they need. Yeah, they're saying it might be Matt actually. Oh, Matt is coming back. All right, great. So yeah, with that rotation going into the Marlins series, the Mets need to sweep to get back on track, and then they have to face the Nationals again. So they just got to, you know keep the line moving and, and keep winning series at this point or else they'll be in hot water. Mike. Hmm. Agree. They better win these games against the Marlins. Agree. 
Uh, otherwise, I reserve judgment till Memorial Day. I don't want to go overboard now, as you say, or we've all said this evening it's still too early for that. So uh, I'll reserve judgment till Memorial Day. In the meantime, I agree. We need to win, especially against the Marlins. The Marlins are the only team we have a winning record against in the National League East, I believe. Pitiful. Bad. Yep. All right, my last, my last phrase for tonight is, and I'll clean it up for purposes of being on the air, cut the crap. Okay, they they need to stop this crap of of losing to teams that they're better than. I do believe they're better than they're playing. They need to cut this stuff out now and start going out there and absolutely abusing the Marlins. They need to abuse the Marlins. They need. I want them to sweep Washington back in New York next week, and I want them to at least take two out of three from the Tigers. Stop this crap now. Go out there and play like the team that you're supposed to be. Okay. Thank you. All right. That was my last word. Bree, uh, known as Yay, at that Met on Twitter, <laughs> thank you for joining us. Um, thank Sam you for having me, guys. Did you have fun tonight with us? Yeah, that was fun. That was my first ever podcast, so I was you know, a little nervous, but I like this. It's fun. Very good. Fantastic. Thank you for joining us. It is amazing. Sam, nice job, sir. Thank you. Mike. Appreciate it, Rich. Thank you, Bree. Mike, thank you for joining us tonight. And um, so, thank Sam, you. I'll go to you. I'll go to you on this one. Sam, what's the only way we ever end these podcasts? Why don't you be the one to say it? Let's go Mets. Let's go Mets. Let's go Mets. I need to say that at a ballpark soon. There you go. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. Have a great night, and thank you once again. To, uh, for listening, thanks to my participants in the 26th episode of the Metsian Podcast. Have a great night. Good night, Bree. Thanks again. Thanks, guys. Care, Good night. Bye now.